0: Gurave Gauracandraya Radhikaya Tadaliya Krishnaya Krishnabhaktaya Tadvaktaya Namo Namaha mm. So, welcome to all of you. We are continuing with our series of lectures on Sri Radical Personalism. Uh, Today's meeting number thirteen, and it will be our third uh, meeting on Guru Tatwa, the sub-section of this series uh, from seven lectures that we plan to give on the topic. And today we will be talking about the absolute and relative sides of Sri Guru, mm-hmm. somehow in connection to the things that we already touched upon in our previous lectures. So as usual, let's begin with some brief recap from what we saw last Tuesday. Uh, in the second part of the Guru Tatu series, we talked about if Sri Guru is fallible or infallible, or probably both in in its in its own way, each in its own way. So we began mentioning this idea that the, the infallibility of the Guru could be turned in connection to if this if the Guru, Bhasti Gurus fully surrender, fully representing Samasti Guru, Sri Guru, then that person will be infallible in terms of his bhakti will be infallible to the point of capturing the infallible one, Achyuta, Krishna. Krishna himself is binded, but that that love, and in that sense, the person is infallible. But it doesn't mean that the Guru possesses uh, blanket infallibility in every sense of the term, as Krishna does. So Krishna possesses a certain type of infallibility, but we are not to ascribe that in a full sense to to the person of the Guru. A Guru can commit, of course, there are different degrees of person serving in the capacity of Guru. A very advanced, super advanced person serving as Guru may commit not grave mistakes, but mild mistakes. Uh, And being mild, they won't challenge the inner purity of that person. Uh... And a guru who is not in a very high position should be careful of not engaging in grave mistakes, which may affect his, her inner standing. Mm. And again, when we speak about Sri Guru, we refer to someone 100% representing that agency or the degree of that representation coming through a particular person, so to say. When we spoke about grave mistakes, of course, we mentioned things like apparat or types of abuse, like sexual abuse, or things that will even appear in a repeated way or are engaged in, in a premeditated way uh, and are done away with or dismissed in some cases, even all of this compromising one's integrity. And mild mistakes, again, can be some little, little, detail a guru forgetting a verse or misspelling something or Maybe, as we will see, maybe being a little grumpy, but in the context of pure devotion. So that's something different. But we will we should be careful not to over justify grave mistakes in the name of trying to make them mild mistakes, or as we will see today, trying to describe them as the relative side of the guru or something. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned that if there is certain degree of mistakenness, so to say, on a mild level, In a pure devotee, that can add charm to the equation even. It's not only not an obstacle, but it can be something that will increase the experience of intimacy or affection and the opportunity to express unconditional love. Like Krishna himself, Sri Laseer Maharaj will say in his Vrajalila, he's embraced and surrounded by a whole degree of imperfection quote-unquote, so, so to put us to test. No, He seems limited, and he lies, and he steals, and he's a womanizer, <laughs> but all that is happening on a certain way, in a certain level. So, the devotees also have the chance to offer unconditional love. We love him despite <laughs> this long list of stuff. Of course, as Krishna loves us, despite a longer list of stuff, so to say. Mm-hmm. And something related to this point of infallibility is the, the point of omniscience that sometimes I've heard about the saying the Guru is omniscient <clears throat> because Krishna is omniscient, the Guru represents Krishna, so those qualities are kind of inherited or whatever but not. Now, in one sense, of course, the, the Guru is in the heart, Krishna is a Chaitya Guru, Paramatma is one side of the Guru equation who is omniscient, God is omniscient, God knows everything but the devotee doesn't know everything. But if it's he or she is a pure devotee, a pure representative, will know all that is needed to know by Christian's inspiration from the heart. In that sense, the person knows everything. Everything that needs to be known, so to say. But it doesn't know every single password of the email of each of his disciples or the number of each street in the planet Earth, all these type of details. So in that sense, there is omniscience. Of course, we also analyze the possibility of unfortunate possibility of weaponization of terms like So, if someone points at some mistake that needs to be addressed, in this case, especially grave mistakes, or even a mild mistakes that need to be addressed. A guru may misspelling some word and you as a disciple need to point to that to correct that in service to the guru. And sometimes, unfortunately, the idea comes that you cannot criticize the guru, you cannot criticize the pure devotee. If not you are and then the label comes. Aparadi <laughs> <laughs> which is a heavy one in the Godia community. But actually we clarify how aparadi is not something having having to do with healthy, friendly criticism, but something ill motived, or where we are criticizing something that actually is not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned how this fear of aparadi, this neurosis that sometimes is promoted, lends to uh, paralyzed, having a paralyzed critical thinking, not being willing to do, to, to see anything, being passive in witnessing abuse but not saying anything, or being very diplomatic in one's relationship with everyone because you don't want to offend anyone. Mm-hmm. Again, remaining silent. While on the other side, if you criticize in a loving way, that can be a symptom of care and concern, pretty laxion and affection. <laughs> So we shared some symptoms of constructive criticism also, how to engage in that and not to justify up or at, in the name of constructive criticism. You have to have the heart in the right place, so to say. And we concluded mentioning how in, in the case that the guru engages in some mistakes, there should be acknowledged that. There should be no problem in if a guru acknowledges his, her, mild or great mistakes, whatever the case. Now the guru shouldn't be afraid that compromising my Position, not acknowledging that will compromise the position <laughs> and that will set an example for others. You know, if the Guru acknowledges a mistake, others will have a reference point that how to do that when it comes to me acknowledging my own mistakes. And We mentioned how our own Gaudiya Sampradaya is coming from the Srimad Bhagavatam and how Mahaprabhu embraced the Bhagavatam and the Srimad Bhagavatam is the outcome of a genuine Guru acknowledging his own mistakes, his own shortcomings and Vyasadevas we know. So our whole lineage is coming from that principle. So how important it is to bear that in mind. So there is no need to over justify mistakes. There is no need to be neurotic because of possibility of apparat. And the openness to this type of uh, interactions and acknowledgement will, instead of disturbing faith, will be promoted deeper sense of faith, a deeper, most intimate, affectionate type of interaction between uh, guru and disciple. So, anyhow, some thoughts regarding last class from last uh, Tuesday. So, let's continue today with today's topic, third class on Guru Tatwa. We'll be talking on the absolute and relative sides of Sri Guru. So, let's make a brief introduction in connection to this point, a brief explanation of today's title, which is an important point in Guru Tatwa, again, to unravel... uh, These two ideas that I imagine most of the members of the Gaudiya community are accustomed to hear, relative side of the guru, the absolute side of the guru, and they are important to understand, especially it's important to understand what's the meaning, what do we mean by those two, because you can be using those words, and everyone gets accustomed to use those words, and everyone is using those, but probably not everyone has the same idea in mind, so you are maybe talking about something with the same words, but it's everyone is speaking about something different. So that can create lots of confusion and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even sometimes, again, we will cl- try to clarify how sometimes even by this misunderstanding, what do we mean by this? Sometimes we find improper justification. Again, the Guru is committing grave mistakes. That's his relative side. And His absolute side remains unaffected or things like this. So, Or we could over- Emphasize the absolute side to the point that the Guru is similar to Krishna in every sense, and as we mentioned, that's closer to impersonalism, basically. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is trying to to find a middle point between these two. Because again, if we don't get the, the this point and the topics that we already presented in the first two lectures on Guru Tatva, we can have two extreme scenarios, so to say. You know, in one sense, if someone doesn't Conceive the Guru as he cannot make any mistake, but suddenly a Guru, any, some Guru commits a mild mistake even. Oh, that person is a bona fide, because you over-idealize no possibility of any mistake whatsoever. So that's not healthy. But another extreme is a Guru may commit, not a mild mistake, but a great mistake. And you just over-justify that, like, that's a transcendental Leela. That's his relative side, not the absolute side. So that's another... I'm becoming undesirable extreme. So let's try to find some middle point, middle ground here. And we will try to clarify these notions of absolute and relative side in the context of, of course, radical personalism, which is all about about being as much person as, as we can be and allowing the other person to be as much person as they can be, guru, disciple included in this back and forth. So let's go to another section after this brief introduction about the need of clarifying what do we mean by Absolute and Relative. So we go there now. What do we mean by Absolute and Relative in relation to Sri Guru? Hmm. So we will entertain some possible different meanings for for these two words. Hmm. But again, we should make it clear which of those we are referring to when we are talking about that. So again, some people will wrongly think, okay, The misconduct of the guru, whether if it's mild or grave, that's his relative side. Sometimes this type of oversimplification is that on the absolute side of the guru is the side that is never affected. But what's going on on the relative side? So sometimes some people get this type of minimalistic idea, like relative is whatever you see as messy and even deviated and disturbing. That's the relative side, but the absolute side remains transcendental. Yes, it remains transcendental if we want to talk about the Samasti Guru, who is not affected by the misbehavior of a biasti Guru. <laughs> but if a biasti Guru misbehaves, that will affect his inner standing, so to say. So we should separate these two. So, as I mentioned above, absolute and relative need to be properly ascertained. So, let's go to where these two terms are first have been first invoked in our sampradaya, which is by Sri Lasidar Maharaj he, in Sri Guru and His Grace. That's where we find the first uh, quoting of this idea, the absolute side, the relative side of the Guru. And let what well, what did he mean by that, interestingly? By the absolute side of the Guru, actually Srila Siddhar Maharaj is referring to the samasti principle, hmm. to Sri Guru. Samasti Guru, God the absolute macrocosmic agency. That was his idea when he will speak about the absolute side of the Guru. And when he will refer to the relative side of the Guru, he will refer to the Vyasti Guru, the representative of the samasti agency, the devotee of God, so to say. So it's important to bear this in mind. And and, and if we choose to use these two words in some other context, at least clarify them, also use them in a way that is realistic again because the way I just described before this point is not uh, appropriate to say my guru has an relative side which is a mess but his inner substance is unaffected no not in the case of the vyasti in the case of the samasti, that remains unaffected so that's the place from what Srila Siddhar Maharaj will speak mm-hmm. the absolute side of the guru is God himself being guru being the original guru mm-hmm. Or, or, as we mentioned, being God expressing himself through the Guru, that, that part of divine representation that is expressed through the individual Guru. That will refer to the absolute side. But the relative side refers to the to the Guru representing God, but not being God, not being the samasti principle, but a devotee of God, as we mentioned. As Mishwana says, Saknarit Vena Samasthi and then he say, Kintu Prabhuya Guru is to be directly seen as Krishna, samasti, but Kintu he is a devotee of Krishna, Vyasti, representing that agency. So as we can see, this separation between absolute and relative has nothing to do with over justifying mistakes in a guru mm, under the name of that's the relative side. So it's okay, no problem. Don't look in that direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nor of, of course it has nothing to do with over of over-emphasizing his absolute side of total infallibility, like some devotees may like to think. You no, know, it's just about putting everything in its place. Mm-hmm. So again, if we use these terms, we should be clear which were their which were their original meaning. And if we choose to use them in another sense, just clarify it. <laughs> And not only clarify but make sure that you are using them and not abusing them and misusing them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's it, having established which was the original, so to say, meaning of these two ideas, absolute relative side of the guru, vyasti let's go to another other set of possibilities in which we will we may speak about absolute and relative in a legal way, so to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, one first one could be again, an option. We could say, okay, relative and absolute. Relative in regards to the guru is the post of guru for the guru himself or herself is something relative. In the sense, the guru is not seeing himself, I'm eternally a guru. You will see this is even an upadi or something that is, I'm. Engaging in this for service, like being a sannyasi. I'm a sannyasi, but sannyasi is an upadi it's a designation that eventually is to be transcended, so to say. I, I'm embracing it if it's facilitating the development of my real identity, so to say. <laughs> but at one point, I, will, I, I won't I will be a sannyasi eternally in Gulag Brindal, and that's the point, you know, so to say, to give an example. So in the same way, we could say the, the relative side of the guru is his post as a guru and the absolute side of the guru is his side as a servant because the guru is, even while acting as a guru, is a servant and his eternal prospect is being an eternal servant. Mm. That's a way that we could use the terms absolute and relative. Mm. <clears throat> Again, we may use, we may embrace those posts or those situations temporarily since they, if they nourish the ultimate prospect but eventually they are to be uh, transcend it. Mm-hmm. In other words, we, we should embrace our upadis in, in such a way that they don't create further upadis. Mm-hmm. So sannyasi is being an upadhi, but I have to accept sannyasi in a way that I'm not creating further temporary designations by a wrong embrace of that order. <laughs> in a way that helps me to transcend even the sannyasi upadis, so to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So you don't need to become a guru to acquire further material designations. That's the point. But to get Read of them, so to say. Hmm. Of course, I'm saying this from the perspective of the guru, because someone may say, "Okay, but in Nityanavadhip, one of these possible single log for the disciple, his/her guru will be there eternally." So, in that sense, the guru is eternal. But okay, that's from the subjective experience of the disciple. But from the subjective experience of the guru, he will be there as a disciple of his guru. <laughs> you follow my point? He won't be there like I am the guru here. But I am disciple of my guru there, and, and each disciple will feel themselves. You follow my point? No? So in that sense, I'm saying the 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 role of the guru will be temporary and upadi, because again, this very spirit of the guru is we are students forever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and I, that's an that's one way that we could talk about. Absolute and relative side of the guru another way could be in relation to how a guru uh, It's it's one single person Let's say I don't know Srila Prabhupada one example. He's one person one individual Srila Prabhupada guru But he's known and approached and experienced differently by different people So you could say the absolute side is he's one Prabhupada the relative side is his experience in a very variegated way that's the relative side the relative to each one's uh, approach and experience hmm? you follow my point no? he will be known he will be felt he will perceived uniquely by each of his disciples or by other people even as a different person so to say always it's the same person hmm? so and again krishna and krishna will reach each heart differently through that same person that is the guru it's the same person, Prabhupada, in this case, but Krishna will approach the heart of his of Prabhupada's disciple in unique ways through that same person. So again, we have one and and, and different, absolute and relative, so to say. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Dula Chandra wrote something about that. You told me some time ago, no, that he wrote there are many Prabhupadas. No, there is one Prabhupada, but each one will each disciple and person will experience a different facet of the jewel, so to say. So in that sense, we could say they're different ones, mm-hmm. because if not, we we enter this realm of uh, excessive certainty. You know, that I know who he, who Prabhupada is, and he's only what I know he is. And it's like mm, you shouldn't be so sure. You no, know? like when is entering as arena, and different people experience him differently, but he's the same person. Mm-hmm. So there are many Prabhupada's and at the same time, Prabhupada is one. And on top of that, three gurus one, as we mentioned. <laughs> there are not even many. In the Samasthi conception, there's only one. In the Vyasti representation, there are many. But each of those many are one, individual, but can be experienced in a different way. <laughs> so, so that's another way of speaking about absolute and relative. I know that some devotes may not like this and that may be a little bit out of the comfort zone. Like, how what do you mean that I mean one guru can be experienced differently. I know who Prabhupada is, uh, but I can say, well, but Srila Siddhar Maharaj, this is a classical example. Srila Siddhar Maharaj had a very intimate and close relationship with Srila Prabhupada. And unfortunately some followers of Srila Prabhupada do not accept Srila Siddhar Maharaj. So they're missing that relationship. They're missing that side of Prabhupada, that Prabhupada that someone like and got to know, that, that side of Prabhupada they, do not, they may not know. So, and it's okay, I'm not condemning them, I'm just saying, that particular person is knowing the person you know, but in a way that you don't know. <laughs> so there is a possibility of that. Because if not, we enter into more in a realm of we know him, uh, and others do not know him, and it's more a way of saying we control him, we manipulate he's under our control, actually it's an insult although externally it seems very glorifying. It's a manipulation of of a sacred principle. Mm -hmm. So there's a very nice book called Sula Prabhupada, The Friend to All, that many people wrote before Prabhupada went to, um, many people who knew Prabhupada before he went to the West, and they shared their own particular experiences of him before becoming the great world Acharya, and that shows, wow, so many further facets that probably many of his disciples never met. And it's okay. Again, you may not be able to know all of them, <laughs> but at least it's good to remain open to that possibility. That can, that can be the relative side of the guru, while in the absolute side is the same person. So that's another way to use the terms absolute and relative. And finally, one of the main ways that absolute and relative terminologies invoked is in connection to the, the Sri Guru in, on his human side and personality, the relative side and Sri Guru and his inner world of Bhakti, the absolute side. And probably this is one of the main ones, the main ways in which these two terms are invoked. So let's turn there next and probably only for the rest of the class, <laughs> since it's, I think, the one that needs further, more unpacking. <clears throat> so next, let's go to the next section now, where we will begin speaking about does the relative side of the Guru speak of his or her absolute side that's the up, the humanity of the guru hinting at the inner world of bhakti of the guru or not they are totally different they are connected to which level we will try to delve into this so again if we speak about absolute and relative we are making a distinction between these two, we are not saying they are absolutely the same because if they are absolutely the same, we wouldn't be speaking about them in two terms. (laughs) So they are not the same, the absolute and the relative, but also they are not entirely different Mm -hmm. from each other to the point of making a black and white divorce between them, so to say. Mm -hmm. So they are different, but they are, as we will see, quite connected to the point that one is speaking of the other. And in which, in which sense do I mean this? I mean, in this case, the relative side of the Guru, again, the personality, the humanity of the Guru, will be pointing, hmm? will be speaking about the absolute side of the Guru. We'll be speaking about the, the inner world of of realization, spiritual realization of the Guru. And we will explain how now. Hmm? <clears throat> At least in most of the cases we will also analyze some exceptions to the rule there are always exceptions to the rule but we will also try to address the, the general cases so to say. because sometimes again we may hear things like okay the absolute the absolute God hmm? is the guru's side of the pure devotee and the relative side is his human side. Yeah, but again what, where is the line between these two? You know, how much we can like okay, absolute. Relative, spiritual, human. What's, what do we mean by human side? And again, is the humanity of the guru totally divorced from his/her side as a pure devotee? You know, does his pure devotion play itself out in the humanity of the guru, or is tam- something totally running parallel to each other? I mean, remember what we talk in our classes on, on, on individuation, for example, how much we should integrate our humanity in our spiritual project to the point that that humanity will accompany us eternally in the human-like pastimes. Mm-hmm. So humanity is basically speaking a lot about our spirituality in this point. The two of them will be one, so to say. <laughs> so humanity can and should be integrated in our spirituality, at least for us Gaudiya Vaishnavas, in our particular tradition, and that to the point of eternity, not even now, as something that will help. <laughs> So my point is that if, if a Guru, a Bhyasti Guru is fully representing Sri Guru, mm-hmm. then the humanity of the Guru will somehow reflect his spirituality. You mm-hmm. follow my point, if a Guru is fully advanced, fully surrender, even participating in the human-like lila, that humanity that we perceive is connected to the humanity that he's exhibiting in, in the lila, so to say. Mm. They won't be as separate as we may like to think. Vishwanath Chakrabhartitakurin, in one of his f- famous purports in the Vaut, and he, he describes how the sarakadeha, physical and psychic body of the practitioner, as much as it gets impacted by bhakti samskars, by impressions of bhakti, the, the body, physical, psychic, will imbi- imbibe these impressions of Swarup Shakti and will become spiritualized accordingly well, it's a process again it's not black and white no now material now fully spiritualized he says at one point the spiritualization process is such in christian terms this is called as transubstantiation that the, ma- the material part of the sadhakadeha is no longer present there is no we can we shouldn't technically speak and speak about material body no although you see the person there the sādaka, body, the body psychic material is fully spiritual, spiritualized. So my point is, how, and that, that includes the humanity of the person. So how much that humanity is speaking about the spirituality if it's fully spiritualized? <laughs> Follow, no? So if we make these two totally unrelated, absolute relative humanity spirituality, that's not accurate to begin with. And also that can lend to different forms of abuse, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, the guru is a sexual predator. On the That's his relative side. That's his, like, frail humanity. Mm-hmm. But on the absolute side, he's a pure devotee. And it's like, wait, wait, that's, that's a word like that doesn't work. Again, one is talking about the other, no? In, in his human expression on psychology, maybe the guru is a liar or is totally... Know, evading mistakes or close to anyone pointing any faults at him or her, evading reality, engaging in forms of spiritual bypassing, demonizing whomever points at something that needs to be addressed. But on the other side, no, no, but he doesn't remain, he remains untouched on his absolute side. Again, this opens the door to lots of abuse and misuse of these terms. So to say these things, No, that's his relative side. The absolute side is not affected. That's not to harmonize the situation. That's a very uh, superficial way of harmonizing. That's a way of bypassing, actually. So again, it's not that these two sides, absolute relative, run parallel, completely separate from each other. They are closely related, as we say. So in that sense, we can say the relative side of the Guru is talking to us about the absolute side. His, her humanity is pointing and hinting at what's going on inside, so to say. Mm. As we already mentioned in previous classes, humanity is not to be discarded, again, in, in the name of transcendence. Transcendent, transcend something is not reject anything. Mm. There is place for humanity in eternity. There is place for humanity in the character of the guru. Mm. And when I say humanity, also can we can refer to Sometimes the idea human is connected to earth is human. There can be some mistakes in the character of the guru. There can be even some imperfections, as we say in the, in the summary of the last class. The guru may be a little grumpy. And in this case, I'm speaking about someone who is a pure representative. Again, I'm not trying to over justify fits of anger and violence and abuse, but a little grumpy, but a pure devotee. If someone is a pure devotee and is a little grumpy, that has a charm of its own. Basically, you will have you will find grumpy people in the lila, just for you to be. I mean, Jatila is in the top five for sure, but there are a few others. So maybe that guru, pure devotee, was grumpy before becoming so pure as part of his pers- conditioned personality, so to say. And somehow the baptism scars came, but didn't get rid of that grumpiness. Fully, But just put it in context in a way that is charming now. Mm-hmm. And it's, the grumpiness is not compromising the inner standing of that person. That's my point. It's not getting in the way of, the, of his her relationship with Krishna. Mm-hmm. Even in some cases, Krishna himself will just, let's keep this grumpiness here. No, I like it. It will add to something in Lila or also as a test for us disciples. No? Let's see if we judge the Guru only because of that layer of grumpiness. Or if we are able to see that in the bigger picture and the full context and not overjudge him or her because of the grumpiness. Because that can happen also. So I'm trying to mention that as well. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a potential for charm even in that. So-called imperfection, human fragility, whatever. That's one thing. Of course, in another case, when the Guru's relative side or humanity becomes much more gross, so to say, and the devotee is not so advanced, that relative side will create an interference, so to say, and it will affect the inner standing, if I, whatever, am carried away by so many other things. That's another case. That's another separate category. Mm-hmm. Especially if both the guru and the disciple try to over-justify that. It's the relative side. It's the relative side. No, that's not the way to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I even, even heard devotees that in, in their attempt to over-justify the guru's clear misbehavior, they just say things like even the relative side of the guru is absolute. Mm. So everything is absolute, actually, even the relative side. So no need to see any relative thing here. Everything is to be absolutized, to upgrade it to that platform, so to say. And the guru may be abusing or doing lots of misbehavior. Everything is absolute.
1: Mm.
0: Which again... The only way we could say that, even the relative is absolute, is again, if the Guru is a pure devotee and is a little grumpy, we could say that relative side is absolute in the sense it doesn't get in the way of the absolute. In that sense, it's, it's, in that sense, it's absolute. It may even add to the charm of the equation. In that sense, we can say that, mm-hmm. but not in any other case. Mm-hmm. And that's, those cases may be more the exception to the rule. <laughs> So apart from those exceptional cases, we shouldn't say those things. Even the relative side of the guru is absolute because you can, that's dangerous. I mean, you can over justify anything with that idea. And even if you claim that, that raises more suspicion. Like why you insist so much? Why do you need to stretch the whole thing to that point? Even the relative is absolute. What do you want to over justify with that? Probably because we, we, we end up saying that because that's the only way we maybe justify something that shouldn't be happening, actually. Mm. So we should pay close attention. I'm not saying doubt from every guru. I'm not saying nothing like that. But just sometimes situations like this happen and we should be equipped with the proper tools and discernment to know what to do, how to understand. Mm sometimes even the evasive mechanism a similar one in this line will say things like no but we as our concern as disciples should be totally focused on the absolute side of the guru we should be so surrendered to Srila Gurudev that we don't have time even to analyze any way in which the guru may be failing as a human may falling short from his relative point of view we don't have time to to see that because we have to be so much focused and absorbed in that. But again, <laughs> I mean, while I appreciate the intention, surrender to your guru and focus on, on, on the absolute side, if the relative side starts to get in the way clearly, again, if it's just a grumpiness in the context of pure devotion, yeah, don't make a big issue of that, even become charmed by that. I mean, you can look at that for the sake of charm. <laughs> but if that's not the case... To say such a thing will be naive avoidance and spiritual bypassing at best. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we will be silent, how do you say complicity mm-hmm. or, or hypocrisy or willful blindness at worst, mm-hmm. Where you are participating or the perpetration or, or whatever type of abuse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So sometimes these arguments come, no, some other argument will be similar. We in the guru we are finding the absolute coming to us. So we should focus on that divine descent. But sometimes, and and, and here we enter into this apparat neurosis. Sometimes you keep focusing on the relative instead of appreciating how the absolute is descending of you. We are willing for the infinite, no? but still, the disciple keeps insisting on the relative of the things that make sense for the for the disciple only. that's whimsical. And that's again closely tied to this apparat neurosis. Don't think, don't criticize, don't see the relative. And yeah, in, in the guru, if the guru is bona fide or to the degree that which is the case, we find the absolute coming to us. And Sri Guru is the absolute principle, Samasti Guru. However, the guru with the small g is not the absolute, no. it's representing the absolute agency in one degree or another. So try to remain this crucial difference because if not, we make this hodgepodge and we can end up justifying the unjustifiable. Mm. So if someone criticizes a devotee who is seeing something that is clearly getting in the way as you are not willing to grow beyond the limit of what makes sense to you. Mm. Actually, we could say, I mean, for some reason, if someone is seeing faults in the Guru that doesn't make sense and then So for some people, it doesn't make sense. You shouldn't be seeing any fault in the guru. We could say, well, your willingness to not see anything in the guru shows how you are not willing to grow beyond your own, what makes sense to you or your own comfort zone, so to say. We can use the same argument in reply with all respect, again, (laughs) but that can happen. So again, the guru's humanity has to be expressed in a way that it doesn't get in a way with the inner side. If not, his uncontrolled humanity, unbalanced humanity, will be talking, speaking to us about what's going on in the inside, we shouldn't over justify that. For example, in Shastra, <clears throat> the main verse in the Bhagavatam describes the qualities of the Guru, Says paris, anish, brahman, upasamastrayam, among other things. So the Guru has to be expert in scripture, it has to have realized knowledge of that, but also, uh, I mean, has to know the theory, has to know the theory, how to say, how has to have the realization of his her, the words he's repeating or she's repeating. But how this knowledge and this realization will be expressed in one sense externally, upasam asrayam says this verse, which means literally asrayam means shelter, upasama means tranquility. So upasam asrayam means. The guru has taken shelter into tranquility, which is another way of saying the guru has his or her senses under control, human passions under control, at least on some level that it doesn't get in the way of his serving us in the capacity of guru. Another way of speaking about controlled senses will be balanced humanity. (laughs) The human dimension is relatively integrated in the case of the guru. Again, at least to a point where the person can teach others <laughs> and that his unbalanced humanity, if there is some percentage there, that that's not getting in the way of his her teaching others basically. Follow my point. So again, a guru can be guru and has still some percentage of humanity to integrate. But if it's too much out of integration, that will get in the way of his service as a guru. Mm-hmm. In other words, the guru can, cannot be driven, cannot, shouldn't be driven by human passion to an excessive degree. And again, when I say guru having control of humanity, I don't mean just with this a guru. Physic sannyasi he shouldn't have illicit sex. That's not the only way of being driven by human passion or having uh, unbalanced humanity. <clears throat> if you, for example, are serving as a guru but you are repeatedly being carried away psychologically and emotionally or triggered in a very excessive way by certain situations, by ser- because of certain psychological wounds or unresolved trauma that you have not dealt with, even acknowledged. And every time that's triggered, it's leading you astray and makes you behave in very exaggerated way, ways. And you become like some other person, so to say, <laughs> to your disciples. That shouldn't be happening to someone serving in the capacity of Guru. That's not healthy. That's too much, basically. Mm -hmm. Again, there can be little sparks of unintegrated humanity here and there. But it's not that you are really carried away, but you're unbalanced humanity. And then you have to over justify that and stretch the whole philosophy and trying to force your followers to accept your new stretching as the, you, the, the actual bona fide versions of things, so everything remains in order. Mm. Again, I and mean, if someone says, no, but that's the relative side of the guru. That's not touching his absolute side. But again, Bhagavatam is not saying this. Bhagavatam is saying, one symptom of the guru is who passed from he or He or she has to show balanced humanity, control mind and emotions to act as such. If that's not the case, probably that person shouldn't be serving in, 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 that, in that capacity. So again, yes, the guru has to have knowledge. The guru has to have realization. But all of that will be reflected in how he deals with his own mind, with his own emotions, how he's or she's not carried away by that, how he's not forced to act in certain ways that compromise his integrity. So that's part of a reflection, again, how the human dimension is showing what's inside, that's what the Bible says here. Guru has to have knowledge and realization, but that will be shown externally in how much the Guru has balanced humanity or not. So anyhow, some words regarding if the humanity of the Guru will speak about the inner side, if the relative side will be speaking about the absolute side. And as we have seen, they are quite connected between the two, they are not completely separated. So let's continue with another section Uh, by examining the consequences so to say of misreading these important points in terms of absolutizing the relative side of the guru so as i like to say sometimes absolutizing the relative side of the guru means relativizing the absolute side of the guru if you relative if you absolutize the relative you relativize the absolute and that's delicate because that affects the whole guru equation and how you think of Guru. Mm-hmm. So as we already mentioned, some of us may resort to this idea absolutizing the relative side. Now, even the relative side is absolute. No need to speak in with two words. Let's use absolute for everything. <laughs> but again, that will lend not only to different forms of abuse uh, and over justification, but also that will lead to a relativi- relativization. <laughs> of the actual absolute side of the Guru in terms of samasti Guru and the universal principle of Guru, Sri Guru, that there is an absolute side to that, as Srila will say. And if you just absolutize the relative, you end up relativizing the absolute, in which sense that you reduce the notion of Guru to whatever conveniently fits your present comfort zone in whatever you need to justify. So oh, this is Guru now. <laughs> So, you have relativized the absolute side of the Guru by absolutizing the relative. One thing is proportionate to another, so that's a dangerous proposal. So, as we already mentioned, on the relative side of the Guru, I'm sorry to repeat the idea 108 times, we need to get that really clear. The relative side of the Guru <clears throat> is absolute only, again, if it's a grumpiness in the context of pure devotion, so to say, <laughs> no? or, or in the context of the humanness of the guru, is fully reflecting his inner back world of bhakti without getting in the way of that, mm-hmm. fully integrated humanity. If the guru is 108% surrendered, whatever comes from that relative human side is, is just transparent reflection of his transcendence, basically. So in those cases, we could say the relative is absolute. In the sense, again, it's not interfering with the flow of the absolute in the life of that person. But also, we should be honest enough and recognize such high examples probably are more the exception to the rule than the, than the rule. So apart from these exceptions, <laughs> the idea of the relative being absolute has no support whatsoever, no? trying to just stretch and over-exaggerate who knows which which with which intention. And actually if someone is insisting on that, the relative should be absolute. Maybe the question is, what is the purpose behind that insistence? Why we push so much with that proposition? Why do we need to absolutize the humanness of any guru or my guru or any situation? Again, the guru's side remains human and according to how much that human side is embraced, integrated, resolved in the service of the Absolute, that will determine how much the humanness gets in the way of the flow of the Absolute or not. How much you have solved, integrated your humanity, that will be a reflection of your inner world or that will get in the way of that. Remember, transcendence has to do with transcending the relative is integrating the relative, not avoiding the relative. So, So if we absolutize the relative side, again, that's over-idealizing, over-idealization of a particular situation, for example. The guru did something and you kind of, again, overstretched the whole thing. And that in turn creates excessive expectations. Mm -hmm. If you over-idealize your guru, in turn, that creates in you as a disciple over-expectations. Because you are seeing that person as something that he or she is not. Uh, many times unconsciously, of course, this is not conscious, and, and creates a whole situation that doesn't match reality, where you are actually seeing someone for something he or she is not, and developing expectations that won't happen, because the person is not what you think you are. <laughs> and the person may be bona fide, but you are over-idealizing again. Mm-hmm. And the problem is if both disciple is having all that projection, and the problem is if the guru buys into that as well and both of them signed the same contract of over-idealization, the two of them are embarking upon a journey of science fiction and fantasy uh, where both of them probably are cheating each other. Mm -hmm. The disciple is projecting something that is not real, and the guru is accepting that and and even demanding more of that in some cases. Some cases even becoming addicted to that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Again, one may over-idealize the Guru, as we say last class, Gurudev is omniscient, he knows everything. Everything and every answer to every question. And the Guru may buy into that. and say, I always know. Or the Guru may think, again, with this I'm not talking about an advanced, very advanced Guru, someone who may be serving in that capacity and unfortunately misrepresenting the agency of Guru Tattwa. (laughs) And that person may think, oh, I have all this environment thinking that I know everything. And probably the guru, I mean, being compassionate with that person, he has such influence in the environment and he kind of uh, surrenders to that. So to say, okay, all of them say that I know everything. I always know everything. But the problem comes when he or she realizes I don't know everything. Okay, but at least I must give the idea that I know everything every answer to every question Mm -hmm. and sometimes that person will sustain the facade (laughs) by allowing only those questions that he knows how to answer (laughs) or if some answer is some question is there that he doesn't know how to answer too narrow answer or the chinta button or something like that like you are thinking too much or (laughs) dismissing certain inquiries and in that case basically promoting a culture of faith based on fear and blind submission in many cases. So I'm trying to rely rely on this principle of absolute certainty. I know everything always, whether it's the guru or whether it's the disciple. So by excessively relying and standing on this land of absolute uh, absolute certainty, being unwilling to visit the land of uncertainty, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> if the guru remains in that position, the, the answers of the guru from that excessive certain place uh, will become in time totally predictable because he always knows what to say and to every answer he will have the like the magical formula but in time you already know what he will say and and everything will become completely limited and predictable and we as disciples will lose touch with the exciting prospect and humbling principle of ongoing revelation because everything became like too certain there's too much certainty. You follow my point, no? So uh, our prospect is that, On the contrary, there's no limit to progress, to how much you can learn and, and, and go deeper and realize in eternity. So, but the problem is when a guru and the disciple, they both sign the contract, predictable answers, certainty, and that's the percentage to keep the status quo. No? So don't go beyond this, don't transgress this principle full absolutization of the Guru, don't ask unsettling things, hard questions. (laughs) So all those things become anything but boring, basically. No astonishment, no wonder, no excitement, so to say, but boredom. And you have a cumulative effect of that boredom, maybe you leave the practice altogether. Because it's like nothing is going on here. Everything is like stagnated. Or maybe in some worst cases, you don't leave the practice officially. You remain externally, who knows for which interest, but you leave the practice unofficially in the sense that internally you lost inner touch with ongoing revelation, ongoing inspiration that you should fuel your every single day. But you remain externally as a member, motivated, quote unquote, by who knows what by fear of transgressing, or by some perks that I'm receiving, statu quo, you name it, depending on the case. Mm. So again, this happens, absolutizing of the relative. Some disciples, as we mentioned, will think, Guru Dev is omniscient. Mm. So therefore he knows whatever I need to to, to do or to hear maybe a guru may have so many disciples that in some cases he doesn't even know the names of every disciple. Which I'm not criticizing, I'm just mentioning that can happen. So the point is, in some cases, how to say, a guru may give instructions that are applicable to everyone, universal instructions. Like the goal is to love Krishna. Okay, it applies to everyone. But in most cases, every disciple will need also some personal, individual Support, not only the general replies. Again, the guru can fall into that. This is the answer: chant and be happy. Good luck. And of course, that's that's okay. Chant and be happy. But what does it mean? What are the implications in my particular case? And the guru may not have time to deal with every person. I, it's clear. I understand. But at least there should be some arrangement for every disciple to to receive that personalized guidance, to have those based covert, so to say, because if not everything becomes too, again, constricted, boring, limited, predictable, certain. Mm. And of course, a, a pure devotee, if a guru is a pure devotee, that person will receive Krishna's inspiration in the heart, will be empowered to touch everyone's heart, whenever he's saying even the same thing to many, but again, not every guru is on that platform to begin with. <laughs> and even if that's the case, on many occasions, the disciples will also need some personalized guidance from the guru, from someone else, because the guru may not have the time to provide that to every single disciple. Uh, and again, also the guru should be able to guide and assist the disciple in such a way that the answers will come for themselves to the disciples. No? They, they, they will be taught how to think, Not what to think so the Guru is not someone just telling them what to do on the surface Mm. but it's someone taking taking the disciples to the depths and teaching them how to swim in those depths and how to for them to be able to to find answers for themselves also by the grace of the Guru of course Mm. but this is the role of the Guru again not just I know everything just hear my reply that's it So in this connection to the absolutization of the relative side, also it's important. Another aspect of it is that the gurus are the opinion of the guru is not necessarily absolute in terms of relative issues. Mm -hmm. For example, I don't know political view or a specific social issue, Mm -hmm. a relative issue, whatever. Uh, A guru is expected to have good knowledge ideally perfect knowledge of Shastra and so on, but it doesn't mean that he has perfect knowledge about economy, ecology, whatever, you name it, so many areas, disciplines. Mm. So he may have an opinion, he may have, she may have some thoughts on that, but it doesn't mean that we are to absolutize that. That would be another way of absolutizing the relative. Mm. So again, they don't, and they don't need to be perfect in all those areas of knowledge. So for a disciple, it's important to know that and for the Guru not to lend themselves to, yeah, I can answer any question on any topic, on any area of knowledge perfectly. That's There's no need for that. Because if not, the, the disciples start to think, okay, then my Gurudev can be my psychologist. He can be my financial assistant. He can be my romantic counselor. He can be everything. And the disciple shouldn't think like that. If you need a psychologist, that's okay, but that's not your guru. If you need a financial assistant, that's okay, but that's not your guru. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because if the disciple, again, ex- expects all those things coming from that single person, that lends to this over absolutization of whatever relative views the person may have on each of those areas. Mm-hmm. And lots of problems may come. For example... If you absolutize your guru's opinions on everything and you go, "Gurudev, which car should I buy? And the guru may not be an expert on the field or whom to marry. Uh, that's not necessarily the area of expertise of the guru. But maybe the guru gives an answer. Hmm. Maybe with good intention, not, not playing like omniscient person, but, but in time that answer proves inaccurate for whatever reason can happen. So the point is that for the disciple who has absolutized the relative opinion of the guru, that disciple has basically two options. One is Guru Gurudev is wrong. But then everything collapses because for that devotee was like absolute and relative became one thing and so if he's wrong in that he's wrong in everything and you follow because the devotee has invested absolute trust even in relative issues. So Well, that's one option. And the second one is, no, no, since Gurudev cannot be wrong in anything, then I must be wrong. If I'm going crazy, if I'm feeling this wrong, it's my mistake. So the disciple goes neurotic due to the result of that particular situation that is not working clearly, but you push yourself, you punish yourself because it's not working because Gurudev is always perfect. So you start to punish yourself and you start enter a trip of guilt and shame that may have no end mm. you follow so it's that second option will be like kind of neurosis in the name of Guru Nishta no, I have to be Guru Nishta I have to have film fame of my Guru he's always perfect and you are getting more and more neurotic with that because you have absolutized everything in that person now, everything has become absolutized so when it fails the failing is so absolute <laughs> because you can't separate the two absolute relative. So in that case, absolute means absolute failure and the absolute failure falls on the shoulders of the disciple. And of course, again, brutal feelings of guilt and shame follow and you can imagine what's the result of that. And unfortunately, I've seen many gurus promoting this kind of over-absolutization of their own image to his disciples among their students. Not only and trying to cover up for mistakes they may be doing (laughs) and showing everything is perfect and everything will be always perfect because the guru is absolute. That's this forced superficial template that sometimes is being even promoted by the gurus. And again, if someone dares to not buy into that (laughs) and somehow see some crack in that whole structure, something that is wrong and needs to be corrected, Many times, in that context of over absolutization promoted by the guru, blindly accepted by the followers, if someone sees something that needs to be addressed, that person will be immediately labeled as again, we enter the apparatus club uh, or the apparatus neurosis and stigmatize that person, defame, ostracized, scapegoat you name it. And now, the followers, the blind followers of that guru, have a new enemy to find themselves united in, in a common ideal with no so, and, and then ne- the enemy of course needs to to totally fail to prove that they are right basically no? i need you to fail so you confirm my own present conviction so to say you know, my absolutized faith even in the relative side of the guru i need you to fail to help me to prove that please again maybe they don't want you to fail but they need you to fail which is a very interesting dynamics. And what happens if the person doesn't fail, fail or fall? The person who pointed the mistake was actually right and was pointing to that in a well-wishing spirit. In time, it doesn't fail. So the ones who need the person to fail will think like, well, if he's not falling or failing, it's because he's much worse than what we thought. So he's not repenting. He's happy. He's continuing like, if anything, he's such a rascal such a demon. He seems happier. What's going on? (laughs) So insensitive from his, her part, nothing, but how he, he should kill himself, but still continues and a bigger reaction should come. So he really realizes there the mistake 10 years have passed and nothing is going on. 20 years have passed and the reaction is not coming. So at this point you have to really think the person is the worst possible entity on earth to continue flourishing despite all thing the thing that he or she did. You follow my point. That's the way you can that's the only way these blind followers can just sustain, quote unquote, and over justify their absolutization of the relative side, unless some cracking comes and starts to show them the, the actual truth. No so, so the point is that if you remain thinking in absolutes in connection to these aspects, you you won't allow yourself and you won't be able to questioning a possible mistake on the relative side of the guru because you think the relative is also absolute so if i dare to see a mistake in the relative means i'm seeing a mistake in the absolute and i'm questioning the whole structure of guru Tatva and you don't want to be part of that team <laughs> and so immediately you feel no, i cannot question that i cannot look at that mm-hmm. because if not some crack comes and makes the whole project collapse and maybe you need that to collapse in order to to embrace the whole thing in a more realistic way. Mm -hmm. So again, for many people, that's too challenging because that will throw them into the depths of uncertainty. So it's way better, quote-unquote, better, more comfortable to continue scapegoating and always transferring one's own unresolved issues to some external enemy, (laughs) all in the name of having faith. (laughs) That's a more interesting thing. So that's the, this is the danger of, of seeing the Guru as absolutely absolute, even in the relative side, in every single case, an, over, an overestimation of the person. Again, in one sense, there's n- never enough what we can say to praise the principle of Sri Guru, but there's a way to overestimate the person of the Guru, like in the examples we have been sharing. Let me share a few words from Sila Prabhupada in two commentaries in this connection very interesting. He says in his purport to Tritani to 1082, <clears throat> if one is overestimated the, the praise that comes in that context is another form of blasphemy
1: <laughs>
0: so again externally it seems *kijai*, internally you're just insulting the person so you can be a disciple overestimating your guru and praising your guru on the basis of overestimation, actually you're insulting him. Mm-hmm. Although externally south you are throwing, you are making puspanjali, throwing flowers, you are throwing stool to that person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in the purpose, something similar Sila Prabhupada says in his purport to Bhagavatam 4.15.23, for those who would like to Prove that my these words are not mine, I'm not creating my own philosophy, this here. He says, if a man who does not factually possess the attributes of a great personality engages his followers in praising him with the expectation that such attributes will develop in the future, that sort of praise is actually an insult. Hmm. So basically the same idea, no? You don't have certain attributes. Hmm but you engage people in praising you as if you have those attributes with the hope of developing those attributes, but being praised by others for those things you don't have. (laughs) I mean, that's madness, basically. But Prabhupada will say, that's an insult. He's much more generous. He's not saying madness. So he's saying that sort of praise coming from a foundation of overestimation, that's an insult. That's not praise. Which again, we have to be substantial again. Externally it may seem about as praise, but it's something very different. So what to do if, if for example, if a guru is praised, is overestimated, let's say. You know, like he's approached by his disciples with this over-absolutization of the relative side. With, his, with this overestimation even of his inner side. The two things can happen. You can see the relative and absolutize that. Or you can think that in terms of inner realization, the Guru is h- higher than one—that what he or she is. So what did the Guru is expected to do? Of course, there are different possibilities, but I will say that one way will be that the Guru will reply to that over idealization by being honest and saying, well, you think I'm that, but I'm not that. <laughs> You think I'm need to see that, but I'm not need to see that. You think I'm an omniscient, I'm not omniscient. You think I know everything, I don't know everything. And you shouldn't be afraid that the disciple will get affected in his faith. No. But actually, that's to nourish their faith in a more realistic way. You think that I am a totally pure devotee, I'm not. I'm replying to your idealization by telling that I'm not what you are over idealizing. That's a commitment for someone in that position. You have to be transparent and honest to make it clear to your followers about what's your actual situation and not posing as something that you are not. That's one option. Another option could say, "Okay, the guru is seeing the over idealization and he's allowing that. Like a father seeing the child saying Daddy, you are the only best, unique, better parent in the whole planet. And the dad knows, no, I'm not that. <laughs> but I cannot force my child to think differently at this point. So he allows that. But he has to remain sober not to believe those words. He knows, my, is my baby over-idealizing me? So the same can happen with the guru. You know? The disciple come in, in a very mature state, like over-idealized. And they realize, okay, they actually need to go through that. They actually need to feel that, to express that. I cannot just like repress that. But the Guru has to have the proper Adhikar to deal with that situation and to not end up buying into that. In other words, if your disciples are over-idealizing you due to their lack of Adhikar, you as a Guru have to have enough Adhikar to deal with their lack of Adhikar. (laughs) Because their lack of Adhikar is taking them to over-idealize you. So your own Adhikar will be about Realizing where you actually are and knowing where you can stand in dealing with that over-idealization, whether you are clarifying where you are or you are allowing that but without buying into it. Mm -hmm. Because if this is not in place, then the Guru Disciple project will prove bizarre and unsustainable and toxic and even dangerous. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, one last section before concluding. Please bear with me a few more minutes. So one last section will be about can the guru's limited humanity be an obstacle to his service as guru somehow we touch on that but let's mention a few more words to make full circle and wrap up so one final point before finishing is again with an important distinction Okay, we we spoke about how absolute and relative sides of the guru human side and inner bhakti speak about one another are related but again there's there's also differences so we go go back and forth to the unity and diversity what makes them one what makes them difference so in one sense you absolute and relative are one in the sense that in the sense of the the humanity of the guru will be speaking about the inner side or in the case of a fully surrendered devotee uh his humanity is adding charm to his spirituality fully integrated humanity but also there is some differences in the sense of and and here i will touch maybe about uh, on some exceptions if you will to the rule a guru can have how to say bhakti adhikar a certain adhikar in bhakti internally but his human and psychological development does not fully necessarily speak about what's going on inside now for example there can be some devotee and again here i'm going to more (laughs) exception-like cases, who is kind of an abadut and has divine love, but behaves in ways that according to the social standards, they are dysfunctional. <laughs> you follow. So if you take that expression of the relative side of the person, you may end up saying, oh no, if, if the humanity is speaking about his inner side, then he, he's, he's not in a good place. But he may have full bhakti adhikar to a point that it expresses itself in a very apparently this functional way, but again, it's not. So I'm saying that to be careful of that, because you, if you meet someone like Bamsi, Das Babaji, <laughs> you will think, oh, he, this guy hasn't an, any bhakti because he seems so weird. But actually, if you look properly, say, no, this this is a highest Muttam Maha who is a who doesn't, who is in a very unique inner situation and doesn't respond to any social uh, standards, so to say. <laughs> Because again, someone has can have prem, and can has a physical illness, disease, and someone can has prem, and ha, can has a psychic disease, also. That's the case. You can have a prem bhakta who has a some problem in his whatever, and, and it may seem like dysfunctional, but it's not. It is not speaking about his inner prem in those cases. Mm-hmm. If you follow? So let's let's try to balance all these points. Don't think that because someone is advanced in adhikar in bhakti adhikar, that person has to have every single human psychic physical thing full in place. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, if the guru exhibits, exhibits some psychic dysfunctionality, <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily speak about his inner world of bhakti. You know, not in all cases, at least. Again, in some cases, yes. <laughs> in most cases, yes. So you can see that it's not black and white. You have to really apply some criteria and take your time. Mm-hmm. And of course, if someone is excessively exhibiting a level of dysfunctionality on his human side by forms of abuse and mistreatment, that's not he's an abadoot or something like that. No, that's another thing. So one thing is to be a social, sexual predator. And another thing is to go naked by town, like chanting Hari, Hari. (laughs) That's not socially acceptable, but the other one is abuse. So all the things have to be properly dealt with. Mm -hmm. So again, if this... But my point is, even if someone is bona fide sadhu, mm -hmm, but somehow is on a human level, psychological level, showing some considerable level of dysfunctionality, although it's a deep shadow inside, probably that person shouldn't be acting as a guru, even if it's a pure devotee. (laughs) You follow. That person may have full Bhakti Adhikar, but may not have the other type of Adhikar that generally is required for being a guru, which is the capacity to interact with other people in society and accompanying them in their lives and guiding them in a balanced way. So the disciples have to integrate their own humanity in their particular side case they may be living. So follow my point, so someone may have full adhikar and being a pure devotee but may not be able to operate, if you will, in the guru function, because you need a human adhikar, so to say, <laughs> to interact with that. Now, you can, have, you can be an avatar, you can live in a cave and you have prem and you are dysfunctional on some social level, so to say, no problem. But if you are about to interact with people, with the world, in a deep way, like most of the Gurus should, you should be qualified for that as well. (laughs) On some level, again, on some level. Apart from the Bhakti, Adhikari, you should have as well, the other eligibility. Instead, when, when, in in fact, when Vishwanath Chakrabartakur comments on this famous verse on the Bhagavatam, Tashmat Guru Prabhada says, the Guru should not only know Shastra, but also be expert in other books. And with this, it doesn't mean only, okay, know other books, other philosophies, so you can refute them or something. Also means know about the the thinking patterns of the time you're living, so you can relate with that if you are a guru. Nowadays, one of those areas, maybe psychology, for example, that's part of the, the side zeitgeist, the climate of the time. So a guru should be on some level acquainted with that. Mm a psychologist generally need to go to a psychologist. I'm not saying that all gurus need to have a psychologist, some may, but, <laughs> but in similar way, at least a guru may not need psychology, but, but, but may need the association for other peers for checks and balances, so to say, you know, to, to keep seniors or peers, especially peers, and sometimes psychologists. <laughs> no problem, no problem, again. You have a physical problem, you go to a doctor, you have psychological problem you go to a doctor what's the difference it's two aspects of the your body so to say your sadhaka deha, and it's healing so again remember our project is to integrate humanity with divinity it's not only it's not only about a bhakti but in, we could call it integrated worth growth so to say no it's not only spiritual advancement but also having our humanity in place because again at one point humanity merges into transcendence in our idea of nara-lila. It's not separate between the two. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for example, the word of the work of the therapist is to <clears throat> create <clears throat> sorry, an environment where, where healing can happen. So the same applies to the to the Guru, who will be in this case like a divine therapist, so to say. He or she has to create a proper environment and put himself in the environment. Uh, and, and a therapist for creating that, the therapist himself has to be truthful, has to be vulnerable. So the same somehow applies to the Guru in relation to his disciples, being accountable, held accountable, and being transparent. Uh, <clears throat> so as we mentioned, the limited humanity, in this way, just to conclude this point, limited humanity may not get in the in, in the way of the internal world of a very advanced Guru, by limited humanity or psychology may get in the way of, of the service of the guru, in the, serving in the of someone serving in the capacity of guru. So that's another layer of, of consideration. So let's conclude with one conclusion section that sometimes I like to have just to wrap up and make a brief recap of what we saw. <coughs> So we mentioned how to institute the guru is in absolute terms. Uh, comes from, from a misreading of what we saw in previous classes. Now remember what we say the Shastra speaks about the guru from an idealistic perspective. But assuming that the person is fully representing that principle. And, and, and on that basis will encourage the disciple surrender fully to Sri Guru, to that degree of representation. But remember, there are also degrees of representation. So we are to surrender according to the degree of representation. <clears throat> and this is a way of talking about Guru that again, will can inspire our faith, can nourish our faith. And also sometimes talking about the Guru in absolute terms can nourish the faith of a neophyte, but also can create problems if you over-absolutized The Guru is perfect always, you have to fully surrender in the beginning, it's like, yeah. But in time, if that's not the case, that can create some problems that we may need to address the same principle. With a a conception and language, not only relevant to our times, but our particular stage, the particular stage of the Guru as well. Without altering the essence, of course, of the Guru Tata, without sabotaging the sacredness of of the Guru-disciple relationship. And similarly, in some cases, the guru himself or herself may need to recalibrate and re-understand his own position as guru from a different place, with a different language, with different conceptions, like maybe some of the ones we are sharing here. Because if not, sometimes we just make it inadvertently a copy-paste of over-absolutizing the guru and whoever happens to be a guru buys into that, okay, now I'm absolute from one day to another, now I became a pure devotee because I've been assigned with the post, so to say. Uh, and as we say, the over absolutization creates an over idealization, and the disciple will have this hyper idealized vision of the guru, and, and the guru may have an hyper idealized idea of the disciple, not only of himself. Because follow the guru, the disciple thinking oh, Guru Dev, you are, boom, over idealization. And the Guru may think, yes. And therefore will over-idealize the disciple because he will expect the disciple to surrender according to the level he's over-idealizing the Guru. So he's over-idealizing the level that the disciple should be surrendering himself. So it comes both ways, no? The disciple is over-idealizing the Guru. The Guru is buying into that and then over-idealizing the work he's expecting the disciple to, how he's expecting the disciple to reciprocate to that. Mm. So it's it's an interesting, dangerous pattern. <laughs> so, bo, but both of them in that over-idealized dynamics will have a very unreal, surreal, <laughs> and fantasy-like relationship, basically, which tends to break very easily in time, unless you have further layers of over-idealization and fear and pressure, which will have its own price to pay. Mm. So again, the Guru's role is not to remain in that comfort zone. Look, over-idealize me and I over-idealize everyone. The Guru's role is not to remain in explored territory, but to inhabit the land of uncertainty, as I like to say, Mm. to maintain himself, as we already mentioned before, in liminal space and bordering chaos, that area from which new insights uh, welcome by the Gurus embracing the unknown, remaining there, not just visiting that those places once in a, in a century or in a year. And that's the job of, of the mystic, to remain embracing the unknown, and that's the job of the Guru, because the Guru is hopefully a mystic, ideally, at least on some level, <laughs> because he has to perform his, his service of mentorship as an, as an elder. So for that you need to be a mystic, you need to embrace these degrees. The Guru is a leader, but when we see leader, we don't necessarily mean the Guru is an administrative genius or a managerial authority or ecclesiastical dictator. <laughs> but leader, because he's courageous enough to, again, to leave the comfort zone of over-idealization, over-absolutization and, and enter the land of uncertainty and remain there. Hmm. Not only visit uncertain lands sporadically, but make that their home, so to say. That means gurus who are brave enough and, and a guru who is brave enough, as we mentioned before, he he will be able to embrace uncertainty to the point of if someone asks a question and he doesn't know, I don't know, he will say. There's no need to say, I know, and if I don't know, I have to figure, act like if I know and whatever. No, <clears throat> I don't need to give an impression of perfect knowledge. You know, real gurus have... A prospect, clear prospect of unlimited potential to know. Of the, I mean, they are, the, the subject matter we are dealing with is infinity. So how much you can say, I know. And if you are a real guru facing that prospect, you can naturally say, I don't know. Or even if you know something, you, you know that what you know is just a little part, and it's more what you don't know than what you know. <laughs> and you can say, I don't know, and still be a bona fide guru, no problem. No <laughs> problem. By contrast, if you as gurus start always with, I know, or even worse, I know everything, omniscience and all that stuff, that has nothing to do with what to expect from a sadhu. That's not something you should be expecting from a sadhu. You know everything. This extreme level of certainty, it's only indicating that you want to remain in your comfort zone, that I know absolutes, over-idealization, perfect knowledge, absolute answers, But you are not, that's not speaking that you are being brave enough to leave your explored territory, to inhabit darkness, to coexist with paradox, to acknowledge your relative side and deal with that instead of over-absolutizing everything so you don't have to deal with anything. And the price for that, as we mentioned, Krishna consciousness becomes totally predictable, totally mechanic, totally formulaic, totally boring. (laughs) Or that keeps both guru and disciple, again, with a very neophyte understanding of what to expect from each other, of what it means to be a guru disciple. If you buy into these patterns, both guru and disciple remain with a very neophyte conception of who is the other person and who are themselves, basically. But ideally, again, the guru-disciple relationship (laughs) is the relationship with the most maturity should be expressed, The, the most potential for for maturity in relationships in one way is personified in that particular relationship. So, and it's possible. I mean, let's have hope. You know? It's possible that all the things can happen in the guru-disciple relationship. We are just addressing some few issues that may need also some special consideration. That's it. But let's have hope in the, the parampara, the guru-disciple project. Hmm? And let's strengthen our particular situation with proper discernment. And let's continue going through moving forward. So let's continue, uh, conclude here. A brief homework for those who will like will be try to reflect how our sampradaya, Godia sampradaya, may be mostly failing in today's points at present, at least from your particular experience and perspective. And of course, the commitment comes with that reply, what to do, what you can do from your particular situation. So see you next uh, Tuesday where we will continue with the fourth part of this Guru Tattva series. We will be somehow in connection, of course, but go going to another landscape, so to say, but also connected which we'll, we will be speaking about on living one's Guru. Mm-hmm. So the, the situation in which a disciple by force of certain circumstances that we have already entertained finds himself, herself in the situation of having to to abandon a particular Bhyasti Guru. So why this happened, how to understand, how to deal with that, different expressions of that and so on. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your time and attention and see you next Tuesday. Sri Guru Tattva ki, <clears throat> ki Jai, Shri Ki Jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai. Gold Pakta bring the keychai, Gold Primanan, Hari bowl, One chunkle patadubias chakrivas indupi evacha, Patitanum, Pavanebu, Barshna Vipunamanum, Anantha Koti Vashna bring